everybody to worship this morning. What a beautiful day. What an awesome time to come together to worship God. Uh, Jenny suggested that we haven't uh, stood up and greeted each other in a long time, and so why don't we just take a few minutes, uh, say hello to each other, feel free to move around a little bit, mention your name, and say hello. Glad you're here. Let's stand. Let's move around. Let's say hi. I'll surname. Okay, now you have to go back to your stalls. <laughs> back to the pews. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Now I'm going to make you stand up again. <laughs> All right, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to come to our Father and worship Him. Amen. 
were singing that song this morning, and it just reminded us of the story of the prodigal son and God's, enth God's enthusiasm for us. But, you know, he's just waiting to bless us. He's just waiting for us to come to him and lay everything down at his feet and enjoy him. And that's what we want to do this morning.
this morning. Thank you, Father, for creating us to worship you. And God, you are such a good Father, and you take us just as we are. And God, when we sin, Lord, we are separated from you. And God, you are so willing to forgive. You're so eager, Lord, to have us in your arms. And Lord, we just thank you that you're always available and that you're always with us. What a gift. Thank you, Lord.
you join me in prayer? Lord, we've just been singing prayers. And now, Lord God, we come before you in a quiet time together to give you thanks and praise, to give you glory, Lord, to magnify your name, your majesty, your grace, your mercy, and your tremendous everlasting love. We're grateful, Father, that when Christ died on the cross, our sins, by faith, by your grace, have been placed upon him. And Lord God, we are free, free to be loved and to love, to rejoice in your grace and mercy, to know that our identity is in Christ Jesus and, and not in our sins, that we are forgiven, that we are declared righteous by you. And so, God, we ask now that your Holy Spirit help us to cooperate with that great endeavor to make us your holy people. We thank you, God, that you are patient with us. You discipline even those you love, and we know that that's always for good. And so, God, we thank you that today we ask that you inform our spirit with the truth of your word. Transform our thinking, Lord. Help us to sort out the things that are from you, from above, which are always good, and the things from the world, which are not. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we thank you that you're with our team as they're out in mission. We thank you for the time that they have for bonding and preparation and the good work that's yet to come in that land that they're heading towards. We're thankful for their safe trip and the luggage arriving. We also thank you, Father, for the people that in our congregation are sick, either with cancer or a bug or an accident or something, Lord, we, we know and we can think about them right now and lift them up for your healing, for encouragement, for miracles that we recognize, Lord God, that we can praise your name. And Lord God, even if we don't see them, we're going to praise your name. We are your sons and daughters in Christ. We are a family with our brothers and sisters around the world. And we are grateful and thankful. We can't thank you enough. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Uh, the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school. And Gabe's got a quick note to share with us. A little bit of a reminder from last Sunday so we don't forget in case the Holy Spirit's working on your heart for a ministry. Also, there's no uh, nursery care today, but the nursery is open. We've got a sickness and two are traveling, and so we're a little shorthanded. So again, it highlights the need for a ministry for the nursery. The more volunteers, the better. There you are, sir. And on that note of volunteers, um, just another reminder that the youth group could use anybody and everybody that is willing and called to help with the youth group. Um, our low nights on a Wednesday is like 10 at this point, and our regulars is like 15 to 18 kids, give or take. Um, and that's a lot of people or a lot of students to handle when they're kind of out and about running around kind of in the building. And for me and Amanda to handle, it's a little bit of a lot. Um, so. Um, if you guys are interested in helping out and volunteering with us, please let me know or let Amy know. I don't know where Amy's at, but it's all good. Um, but our, Amy's our secretary. She's like the point person for that. You could also even talk to Bruce, and Bruce will point you in the right direction. Um, we have youth group on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 8.30 throughout the whole summer. So no breaks, and that's pretty much it. So there you go. Thanks, guys. Enjoy yourselves. All right. Thanks, Gabe.
I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. We're going to conclude chapter 7 this morning. Chapters 6 and 7 are really dealing with the gravity of sin and whether or not that has an impact on our salvation or not, and it does not for all those in Christ Jesus. In fact, chapter 8, we begin next week, and it starts off with a bang. It says, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So I've been holding your breath through chapters 6 and 7. Frankly, you've been holding your breath for a long time, many chapters in Romans, very serious uh, conversations about the nature of sin in us. Thank the Lord for such a wonderful verse in 8.1 next Sunday. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul is heading. But he first has to deal with the nature of sin that we all experience and deal with. And these words from Paul at the close of chapter 7, I'm going to begin with verse 14 and read through verse 25, if you'd like to follow along with me. These are really words... uh, that are serious, but also filled with hope. And I want to share these words with you this morning. We know that the law is spiritual, because it's from God. But I, he says, am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Father, we pray now that these words will illuminate our thoughts, transform our minds, renew us, we pray. We ask that your Holy Spirit give us wisdom and understanding, courage, hope, and encouragement. Lord God, these are your words for us this morning, and we pray that they come home to reside within us, that sin will not seek to reign over us, but that the Holy Spirit will truly lead us in righteousness and that we will, by your strength, by your power, by your might, live into the truth and the witness that we bring to the world. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I have uh, some questions here. Do you? How, how, these are my questions. So why do we sin when we know better? What's the motivation? Right? Should a Christian expect to live a sinless life? 
There are movements out there in the Christian community that say that you can live a victorious life, that you can truly be sinless this side of heaven. Is that the way it is? And how do I avoid giving up in despair and just giving in to sin? It's like I can't help myself, or maybe it doesn't matter. These sorts of things can settle in, and maybe we're just tired. And then sometimes we get temptations confused with sins. Temptations alone aren't the sins. They want to entice us to sin, to act on the temptations. But some people, when they think the temptation itself is a sin, wear themselves out trying not to be tempted. And let's face it, the minute you try not to be tempted, you're tempted. I mean, the stuff that you're trying not to think about is the stuff you're thinking about. It's a crazy maker. How do we cope with this? How do we deal with this? How do we go forward? What is Paul doing? There are two trains of thought generally before I begin. One says that this is Paul describing his life before he was a Christian, as a Jewish man trying to live into the law. Another group, and a much wider group, says, no, this is Paul currently as a Christian, speaking in the first person, present tense, this is his life now, as a believer, struggling with the nature of sin in him. And to me, the latter rings true. All of us are tempted. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. But he had a living spirit in him. He's God with us. You'd expect that. But the rest of us are a work in progress. The church has a fancy word for it. It's called sanctification, to become more sacred, more holy, more set apart for God, more complete and mature. It's a process. If it was an instantaneous thing when we came to Jesus Christ and believed, there would be no such thing as sanctification. We would have arrived. And I'm always a little nervous when anybody says, as a believer, I have arrived. Because you're looking at an absolutely holy, sinless person at that moment, theoretically, and I've never found one. What does this mean? How, where does this take us? How do we deal with that confusion and that turmoil and the struggle that a real Christian has with temptations and sin? Paul's words are wonderful. They really ring true. They hit home. You can take this with you wherever you go. And so let's unpack it. First of all, Paul does say that there's a turmoil within me, he says. And that's true for all of us. Number one in the outlines, the turmoil within me. Verses 14 through 16. We know that the law is spiritual. The Mosaic law on Mount Sinai, uh, Exodus 19 to 24, is generally what Paul is usually referring to when he says the law. He, for a Christian, it means the ethics that are repeated in the New Testament. The ethics that are in the old that are repeated and reaffirmed in the new, those are very much applicable today as they always have been because that's describing the nature and the righteousness and the holiness of God, right? Acted out in our lives. So he says, the law is spiritual. God gave it, therefore it is spiritual. It's right, it's good. Paul, however, says, but I've got a problem. I'm not like that. I'm not from above in that perfect divine sense. I'm a human being. I've come out of a life of an unsaved, belie an unsaved person, now I believe in Jesus, but you know what? There's still this transition going on in my life. And he says, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. In other words, when he talks about slavery, he's including a willingness. We always think of uh, people captured and enslaved without their will involved. They're, it's actually against their desires, and they're treated very badly. Slavery at that time and place could also be a willful decision 
The food might be better. The housing might be better. Your economy might be better. They might have a swimming pool you can enjoy. Who knows? You just you would see a better life for you and your kids and your family if you went into servitude. And Paul says, I am sold as a slave to sin. And we'll see how that plays out a little later. He's not, it's not a willful, I choose to be a sinner, as we'll see, but he's still engaged in that. He struggles. Then he goes on to say this, I do not understand what I do. Have any of you tried to explain a sin rationally? I don't know what I'm doing, what I'm doing. But what I want to do, I do not do. I know what I should do, but I don't always pull it off. Then he says, but what I hate, I do. And I do not do what I, <laughs> and I do what I do not want to do. I agree, the law is good. He says, yeah, the law is good, even though it makes me feel miserable when I fall short. I hate it. Anybody ever been frustrated with your Christian walk? Anybody been frustrated with your spouse? Kids? Kids with parents, grandparents. How about when you look at yourself in the mirror? Just a little frustration now and then, and I don't mean physical appearance, right? It's that, that identity piece. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be, um, what is the old saying? I want to be the person my dog thinks I am, right? <laughs> oh, you're wrong. This is so great. You're most wonderful. Well, that's the person we would like to be, right? Well, let's look at this. Among the apostles... I have placed, in my own personal perspective, I think John and Paul right at the top. It's really hard for me to picture John sinning. And it's hard for me to picture Paul sinning. But are they perfect? No. Now, Peter, on the other hand, that's easy. Right? Because half of what Peter does in the Gospels is wrong. He gets in front of Jesus and tells him, you're not going to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus turns his back on him and says, get behind me, Satan. It's so obvious. Paul, on the other hand, though, he writes all these letters to Christians who are sinning in all the different churches. All the letters that Paul wrote were occasional letters. Not that he wrote occasionally, but he wrote because there was an occasion to write about. And oftentimes, in fact, the majority of the time, it was because Christians were struggling with sin in their congregations, sometimes celebrating it. Isn't this wonderful? And Paul would write and say, uh, no, it's not. And then he would say, grace is greater than your sin, but are you going to go on sinning? And then you get the great Scott, no. Chapters 5 and 6 are loaded with great Scott, no. How can you choose to do that on purpose? But now here I think we've got an honest, transparent admission that he's not superhuman, that he's not in heaven yet that he's a human being, and he says, I do things that I cannot explain rationally. I'm confused. I hate it. It bothers me. I wish I could be free of it, but I can't shake it. It's always there nibbling at the edges. That doesn't mean he's constantly sinning, but he's saying that when I do sin, it hurts, and I don't want to, but I end up sinning sometimes, and it just gripes me. I don't know why I do that. And if that doesn't ring true, I don't know what else I can say. It rings true for me. How do you explain that? Maybe you can come up with some rationalizations, but they don't make any sense in the light of Scripture. They don't honor God, so it falls flat on its face. What's happening? Well, every Christian 
does struggle with sin, I think. I think that's a universal truth. Non-Christians do struggle with God, right? That's the problem that, that's on the non-Christian side of the house. They want to make God owe them something, so they're all good works-oriented. If I do enough good works, if I'm a good person, then God owes me whatever it is that happens after I die. Maybe they've got a clear idea in their own religious beliefs what that might be, but it's all works-based. I achieved it. I deserve it. God owes me. We, on the other hand, as sinners, know that our struggle isn't with God. Our struggle is with sin that opposes God. And it's a whole different orientation in our lives. And we want to honor God and love Him. So Paul is saying that, yes, his identity is in Christ, but he's got a problem with his members. A little later on we'll see that language used. In other words, he's saying, the members of my body are the ones that are sinning. Tongue, arms, legs, body. He's saying the members are sinning, and he's trapped in this sinful body. But yet, is that his identity? He's saying my identity is in Christ. He is forgiven. Grace is greater than his sins, but he wants to live into it. He wants to love God back. And he's not worried about his salvation. He's more concerned with his behaviors and his attitudes and things that creep up from time to time. This is his reality. And so he says he's sold as a slave to sin, sold as passive. Paul didn't become a sinner later in life, and Paul didn't stopped being a sinner after he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was born that way. That's what he means by sold. He was already indentured. He was already under the authority of Adam and the nature of sin, and he's already described that in his book so far. That's just a bit of a recap on that. And the result then is that even though Paul is in Christ and his sins are forgiven and God has declared him righteous and the Holy Spirit lives in Paul, he says, But, man, I cannot shake this life that I have that every now and then I'm sinning, and it drives me crazy. Look what he says in Galatians to a church in Galatia that was drifting away from grace. He says this in chapter 5. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. What does that last bit say? Because we have those two laws or principles at work within us, we oftentimes or sometimes don't do what we want. The mind says, yes, God, and the heart says, but I think there's a better way. And that leads to the sin. He says they're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There's no consequences then for those in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And that Holy Spirit is working in all of us to shape us and mold us and inform us and teach us, to bring to mind the things that are right, to to help us recognize and be convicted of the things that aren't right. But that's not a condemning work within us. That's a sanctifying work of the Spirit within us 
making us the men and women that God wants us to be. But it's a challenge. It's a conflict. There's a battle going on. The Holy Spirit ultimately has all the authority, but the nature of sin in us that we're born with struggles for dominance, wants to usurp the power and the authority of God. It's impossible for a Christian. You cannot take over a Christian. You cannot possess a Christian. But a Christian suffers from temptations, and we can fall into temptation like the world does, more willingly. And this is the life that Paul's describing. So he's in Christ. He's redeemed. He's saved. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. God has declared him righteous. That is his true identity. But when he sins... The temptation is you're no longer a child of God. You're lost. You're out. You're no longer saved. Your sins are not forgiven. All those temptations can happen. Sometimes I, in pastoral counseling, people have a hard time forgiving themselves. They'll say, I know God has forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven myself. You know what that tells me? They honestly don't think God has forgiven them, first of all because they feel like they got to do something to get it right. They forget who they are in Christ Jesus. They forget that God has declared them righteous. They're not willing to absorb and appreciate and savor the fact that grace is greater than our sin. And if they, can't, and if they get that, the next step I say is this. Are you more righteous than God? I mean, God's got a standard that's lower than yours. God can forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. What, what's, why is there a gap there? You learn from it. You confess it. You repent. You yield to the Spirit. You turn back to the way of Christ. You follow the Holy Spirit. If you've hurt somebody, what are you going to do? I suggest you say, forgive me. Don't tell them you're just sorry. Forgive me is engaging. Forgive me is asking them to respond. Sorry is a one-way street, perhaps. Sorry, and I don't care what you think. I've done my job. Forgive me is, please. There's a whole different perspective there, isn't there? That's the one we want to strive for. It's humbling, isn't it? But it's where the wounds are healed. It's where, where we can really understand each other and go deep together as families and in the church ministries and things like this. This is so important that we engage in that kind of conversation. The good news here that we need to remember is that when you're a believer in Jesus, you're not the only Christian you might be thinking without the Holy Spirit and that's why you sin. Nope. Everybody has the Holy Spirit who believes in Jesus, 100%. It's not that some get more and some get less. They've, they're able to stand strong for God and, and you aren't able to stand strong for God. That's not it at all. But there is a process. When you're a new believer, there's a bigger process going on. Later on in life, as we mature in Christ, well, what are one of the critiques against Christians? You guys are hypocrites. Yes, but less so this year than last year, I pray. And even less than the year before that. And even less than when I first became a Christian. Because God is doing an ongoing work in me. And, and my mind is being renewed. And I've seen the consequences of my sins and I realize that they're destructive and damaging they drag me down and over time I've learned and I've grown and thank God that God will finish the work in me he began 
even when I'm not doing so great on that day, God will bring me home. That's really good news and so encouraging. And so when Paul is saying, I want to do what's right, but oh man, I don't get it. I'm doing what's wrong. Drives me crazy. I hate it. Does that ever ring true at any moment in our lives as well? If we're honest, I think it would. If we see the holiness of God and its purity and his purity, you would know more clearly as we all should what sin really is. Verse 15, I don't understand what I do. He's saying there's this battle inside of me and sometimes I'm not on the right side of that battle. He says, I don't know why. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. So how can you explain why you do what you know you don't want to do? How can you keep from being discouraged and giving up to the insanity, the confusion? Well, Paul tells us this, I think, because it's actually helpful and very encouraging. Helpful in the fact that forewarned is forearmed, right? If you know better, you can take action against it. If you know that there's any risk at all, you can take measures to prevent it. I still remember when I was uh, uh, assessed by a psychologist before I became a minister years ago. I have since become crazier, but at the time I was healthy enough to get through it, right? And he said to me, Bruce, what's your risk for having an affair? And I said, zero, because my mind was made up. You know what he told me? You are the most at risk. Did you, you know, I kind of wanted to punch him. How dare you tell me that I am not sincere? But what he meant was, you will take no steps to prevent that from happening if you're blind to the possibility. And what Paul is saying is, let's have a wake-up call that none of us are immune to sin. That's wisdom. That's helpful. Forewarned is forearmed. We can take measures to do the right thing. This is very important. I also know in my own personal life that uh, AA gave me a little clue on susceptibilities, and it's called HALT. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, HALT. Pay attention, because Satan is an opportunist. And in those moments where you're hungry, or you're angry, or you're lonely, or you're tired, you're weaker. And in those moments, Satan can rear up and tempt you, can't make you, but your brain seeks pleasure, and in those moments, the temptations can look like very tasty lures, and we can fall into that temptation. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. What are you going to do? Eat something. Angry? Confess it. You've been hurt somehow. Figure out where the hurt is and deal with the hurt. Lonely, call somebody, go out for a walk, get into the community, whatever it takes to be connected, and then maybe you're just needing to take a nap. You're tired. Close your eyes and take a nap. Get more rest. Keep yourself up to speed. Keep yourself strong. Renew your mind with Scripture. Memorize those favorite verses. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus when Satan tempts you that you're condemned, that you're lost, that there's no hope for you. Oh, yes, there is. In Christ Jesus, there sure is. Always. The Lord's Prayer. Did you ever think about the Lord's Prayer in this context? Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Lord, 
lead me not into temptation. Why would we pray that? God does not lead us into temptation. But what we're saying is, I know that I am not as strong as I would like to be, and I know that temptations come to me, and I know that without your strength and your perspective and renewal of my mind and the power of your Holy Spirit, I'm weak enough that I'm going to fall into that temptation and sin. So God, lead me not into temptation, because I know how weak I am. Deliver me from the evil one who is the source of that temptation. We just say deliver me from evil in our church. Evil is, deliver me from evil is an adjective demanding a noun, so it's an unspoken evil one, and not just some general Star Wars force thing. This is what we can do is pray and ask for God's help. It is never helpless or hopeless. And frankly, if you resist temptation, it's actually a good sign, isn't it? Because you're struggling with sin, not God. You want to do what's right. You struggle with it. If you fall into it, you get back up, confess, repent, and get back on track. That's a sign that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that you do love God, that there's a real relationship there with God Almighty. That's a good thing. And then the focus is not on self-perfection. You know what this could fall into so easily? I've got to be perfect to keep God happy with me. I've got to do better or God won't love me. How can I love myself? How can I love my neighbor like I love myself if I don't love me? All of that stuff gets tied up and balled up and it's just a mess. What you want to do is don't focus on perfection because that is a striving of a sinless person's life in order to maintain your relationship with God and that'll fall flat on its face. It won't work. Humility is the path for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. I preached on this years ago, and I still remember my sermon title. It was one word, smoking. You'll see why I titled it smoking. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Is it possible for a Christian to fall? Paul says, be careful. No temptation has seized you. You're not alone in this, except what is common to man. And God is faithful, even when we're not. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, and you will be tempted, and in fact, beware of this sermon. Afterwards, you may be tempted more than ever. Right? Just be careful. But when you are tempted, he, God, will also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. In other words, and I'm sorry, I got the wrong sermon title on that one. I was thinking ahead. I've got next Sunday's sermon already in the, in the brain, so I'm mixing stuff up. My apologies. At least I'm studying. Um, <laughs> this is saying, basically, where is it that we go when we're tempted? We go back to God. How can a man or woman stand up under temptation? Well, by the power of God. God does not promise to get us out of temptation. I met a man once that had a problem with lust, and he was trying not to look at anybody on the streets in Portland, walking around, looking at lampposts, trees, grass, bushes, and everything else, and he was the most miserable person you could ever talk to because it was a 100% failure 
He still suffered from temptations. He tried to get rid of temptations. That is an impossibility because they pop into mind so fast, you can't stop them. What you do then is you give them to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm under this temptation. I need your strength to stand in Christ under it. And God will provide what you need. But it's an immediate response to temptation. Where do you take it? You take it to God. And ask for God's strength. So don't be discouraged. Fight the good fight. Keep up the good work. Pray like crazy. Confess your sins to one another. Remember, Satan loves the dark. Bring it into the light. Remember, loneliness is one of the key pieces. You find a friend in Jesus who understands that you're a sinner and they're a sinner and we all struggle with it. But to pray for one another is huge. Find somebody you trust and you'll find out that Satan flees that, hates that, does not like the light, can't stand it. It's a great asset that we have each other. And then 1 John 1, 8 and 9 tells us that a sinless Christian life is not an achievable object for us to pursue. We want to, we strive to, but when you fall short, remember, we're saved by grace, not by works, and nobody's going to boast. And look at what 1 John says. If we claim to be, and he's speaking to Christians, if we claim as Christians to be without sin, in other words, I'm perfect, I don't sin anymore, ever. Then he says, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, if we admit them, yes, I'm a, I've sinned, and we confess that, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, that does not say that you're only forgiven if you admit it. Because there's a word here that I, I think is the most wonderful choice of words that Paul could have made, and that is the word purify. The word purify is that windshield wiper that you're so familiar with. If you've heard me preach this before, it never stops. When the rain of sin lands on the window of our car, so to speak, God's wipers just keep wiping it away. And I'm sure if we get into a real thunderstorm, it just keeps doing that and we're able to see and move forward. This is the gift of God to us, the forgiveness that's ongoing and constant. It's not intermittent. So we don't have to worry about it. My analogy is if I'm having a big argument and saying things I shouldn't say and I got hit by a Mack truck and I'm standing before the throne of God in two seconds, have I lost my salvation? Thank the Lord for his purifying work in a believer's life. That's a lot to be thankful for. So Paul says, I keep doing stuff that really bugs me, but I thank God for Christ. That's the end that he says. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Now let's look more at the sin in me is the problem. That's the second point. Sin in me is the problem. 17 to 24. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, because the Holy Spirit lives within him, right? So he's not saying the Holy Spirit's not good, but he is saying that his members aren't good, that there's a nature in him. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. That's the Holy Spirit at work. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, 
It's no longer I who do it, yet it is sin living in me that does it. And by the way, that's not Paul saying, it wasn't me. We'll look at that in a minute. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Did you see the uh, recent article about a major behavioral scientist, uh, therapist, who wrote a paper on honesty? He was quoted by over 100 different journals as an authority. Turns out he was dishonest in his paper on honesty. He made stuff up and claimed that this was research-based. And he was quoted all over the place and used widely and taught. And it turns out that there's a fraud there at work. Did he have to do that? No. Was he tempted to do that? Was there a deadline? Was it that the research didn't go in the direction he hoped it would? And so he wanted to make a bigger splash, so he fudged? Remember when Einstein, you probably don't remember because none of us were around then, right? But Einstein, when he found out that the universe had a beginning, disliked the idea so much that he fudged his math. And a Russian scientist later on called him out on it and said, your math was fudged, buddy. And he said that was the biggest mistake he ever made. Why did he do it? What is it in our nature that, that is prone to do the things that we know aren't right? This is what Paul is describing. If uh, you remember the 70s, if you're old enough, do you remember the Flip Wilson show? Flip, Flip Wilson was the second most watched TV program on the networks. Flip Wilson dressed up as a woman sometimes, and he, he picked the name Geraldine. Remember the, okay, I'm getting a lot of uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you remember one of the famous lines that Geraldine used? The devil made me do it. Yep, he describes one time that his wife went out, he was a comedian on stage, he says, my wife went out and bought three dresses in one week. And he said, what? Three dresses in one week? She said, yes, I was walking down the street, and the devil came up behind me and put his chin on my shoulder and said, look in the window there. That dress is just perfect for you. It's got flowers. You like flowers. It's just your size. Yeah, but I'm, I don't need a dress. I'm not going in. Oh, come on. Just go on in there. So she goes on in. devil says, try it on. I don't want to try it. No, you look good in that dress. Look, just, just try it on. You look at yourself. Anyway, the whole bottom line of the whole series of humor was, her excuse was to her husband, the devil made me do it. And he turned that into a big moneymaker. Right? It became a famous character that he embellished. Now, Paul says, when I sin, it wasn't me. Does he say that the devil made him do it? What is he saying? He is saying that my true identity, the real me, is in Christ. He believes. He's a believer. I am in Christ. That is really who I am. However, there's another principle at work. In the members of my body, the things that I do, the things that I say, the things that I look at, that kind of stuff, the body parts participate in sin, and he's saying that is not me. 
It is sin in me that's doing it, but it's really not who I am. That's where the phrase, I am who I am in Christ Jesus, even on my worst day, makes sense. Your identity is in Jesus. The devil wants to make you think that it's not. But the Bible says, oh yes. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are in Christ. You are a Christian. End of story. Even when you've sinned tremendously, grace is greater than that. God's love for you is stronger than that. His salvation for you and his declaration of righteousness is everlasting. So Paul says, I know who I am in Christ. In fact, when he uses the word innermost being, that's a phrase he uses only for Christians. Only for Christians. In my innermost being. He loves God. He loves to honor God. But there's a part of Paul that won't cooperate and gives him fits. And that is so true for all of us. And how do you deal with that? He feels wretched about it. He's really, really unhappy with what's going on. So where does the law of sin show itself in our bodies? He's very careful to say it's the members of his body and not his identity that's the cause. And when he says it's not me, he's simply saying it's not the real me. It's not my in Christ nature that's causing this. The Holy Spirit's not the fault. Jesus is not the fault. The Father's not the fault. The law itself is not at fault. It's sin nature that I was born with in me. And until he gets to heaven, that's going to be a problem and for all of us. So he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Body of death just means spiritual frustration, defeat, despair. If there was no answer to that question, he would be feeling really low, really frustrated. So how do we cope? What's the answer? John Stott, who uh, was a theologian of remarkable skill and description of the cross of Christ and others that I've read, I really enjoyed John Stott a lot. He's passed away now, I believe. I'm sure he has. He wrote a little note about this piece in Romans, and he says this, Indeed, an honest and humble acknowledgement of the hopeless evil of our flesh, or sin nature, the Greek word there is sarx, S-A-R-X. It's really kind of hard to describe. Some use flesh, some use sin nature. So he's using the word flesh. The hopeless evil of our members, our flesh, even after the new birth, even after we become Christians, is the first step to holiness. To admit that there's a sin nature still in us is the first step toward holiness. To speak quite plainly, he says, some of us are not leading holy lives for the simple reason that we have too high an opinion of ourselves. I am not a sinner. I didn't sin yesterday. I can't recall sinning the day before that either. In fact, I haven't sinned yet this morning. I guess I don't need to worry. And John Stott would say, you're not on the path to holiness. A higher regard, more than reality, isn't suitable for us. When I first interviewed uh, for the Presbytery up in Alaska, my statement of faith started off with, I know that I'm a sinner at all times. And then I went on to to write about my faith in Jesus and my salvation in Christ and my true identity. And I was asked by one of the presbyters up there, he said to me, why did you say that you were a sinner at all times? And I would reply, because that's what the Bible says. There's a nature in me 
that's a constant, doesn't mean I'm sinning, but it does say that I'm at risk and I'm a sinner in my sin nature all the time. Remember, forewarned is forearmed. It's a good thing to know. It's a humble place to start. And it gives all praise and glory to God, not me. Thank you, God. So who will rescue us from the tension, the confusion, and the pain of our sinful natures that can result? Third point, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our Lord. That's where Paul takes it. He doesn't say, I'm going to strive to do better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to take care of hunger, anger, loneliness, and if I'm tired, I'll I'll take care of that, and that'll fix the problem. He says, nope. The only answer, the only way through this muddle, through the confusion, through the heartbreak, and through the tension and the strain and the disappointments is Jesus. Thank you, God, for Jesus. He's going to bring us home, make it right. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ means Savior, the Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. He loves the law. He loves the ethics. He loves the Lord. He loves God's righteous holiness, God's perfect being. He loves God. But then he says, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin or the principle of sin. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Even in our worst day, we are who we are in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus is the Savior, not sin or perfectionism. Jesus is his Lord, but not temptations and sin. He knows that. So what's the take-home? Well, first of all, I think there's a phrase that I ran across that really was, was uh, memorable. The calling of Scripture in a Christian's life this side of heaven is not that we are to strive and expect to be sinless because then we're probably off our guard and we're not taking any precautions. We're just taking it for granted. We're not as alert. It's not that we'll be sinless, but shouldn't the aim that we would sin less That's what sanctification process is all about, that we become more holy, more like God wants us to be in his image as the days and years go by. And then we can mentor the younger people forward as we have learned from experience that we are are in a process ourselves. We remain humble and relying on God and his grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That gets us through. If we're perfectionistic, we're really going to suffer. Really going to suffer. You either have to pretend there's no sin or suppress it or you're going to face it head on and it'll be a calamity in the making. I want to be perfect. Don't you want to be perfect? I want to be sinless. Jenny would say, amen. Right? Of course. Of course. Am I a perfect husband with someone I can see and get immediate feedback from? Well, yes, I am, actually. You didn't know it. (laughs) What's wrong with you men out there? Come on. No, I mean, seriously, I get immediate feedback from my wife, but God is a little different, and we seem to slide a little more easily, like, well, that didn't please God so much, but I didn't notice any consequences. No heavens parted, and a voice shouted, Bruce, what did you just do? I kind of motor on, didn't do anything, because I'm in a perfect place. That is insane. We've got to live 
forewarned, is forearmed, and acknowledge that we're a work in progress. And doesn't that also give us the ability to love each other? Love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that a weird thing to tell a church? Because it's real. The nature of God is at work. So, sinless is our aim, and we can do that with God's help. Then also, don't despair and give in to temptation. Don't think, well, I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do about it. I give up. I've tried. I'm done. It's over with. Don't give up. What is your real identity? Is it in Christ or in the world? Does the Holy Spirit live within you? Well, then you are in Christ. That's who you really are. Don't accept anything less. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't give in. You are who you are in Christ Jesus. And then maybe, you know, you've quit and you've given in to sin and you've called evil good and good evil or whatever, you know, you flip-flop things around, then it's time to let the Bible renew your mind. That's what the Bible does. It, it equips us for the work that God has given us to do. It tells us what's holy and not. It tells us what's good and what's evil. It helps us understand ourselves and the world around us so that we can live into the good stuff and not fall prey for what is ultimately bad, but may look good like a commercial. I was just talking to Rebecca Scott the other day, and she's, uh, she's on a new medication. And have you ever read the, the list of stuff that goes with your medications? Of course, the older you are, you know they don't want you to read it because they print it in like four-point font, and you've got to get a magnifying glass to see what it is that they've got on that piece of paper. But if you could read it, you probably wouldn't take the medication. It could kill you or give you diarrhea or something else right? It's all there. Those are side effects. Well, when we read the Word of God, it helps us see the side effects of sin. It helps us realize that what the world offers is just approximations or substitutes, but not the real thing, the real pleasures that God has in store for us, the real blessings that God has for us. We don't want to shortchange that and reach into the world isn't that the original sin in the Garden of Eden? God gave them all that wonderful place to live and everything they needed for life, and it was really sweet. And then the temptation was, you know, shouldn't, wouldn't you want the freedom to decide for yourself what's right and wrong, good and evil? Well, and you won't die if you do. It'll be okay, flat-out lie. And so when they did do that, they fell into sin for the very first time in human history. And death was the result. And when the world offers us things that the Bible says are wrong, what does that lead to? Consequences that are destructive. You won't lose your salvation as a Christian in Christ. Grace is greater than your sin. But realizing from reading the Scriptures, sin is a lure that's really destructive. It has immediate pleasure maybe, but the long-term effects are not that way. Quick fix, bad result. God says, take the long view. It's an adventure in the dark almost. It's a walk of faith where you are told by God, I will meet your needs. Trust me. But God, I have a need right now. God says, trust me. Walk with me. Trust the Holy Spirit. Pray for strength. Ask for help. Get into a community of believers like church where you can support and encourage and pray for one another. Lift each other up. Encourage one another. And then with faith, we walk with God, and we find that our needs are met. But it takes time. 
It's a walk of faith and trust many times. And we've got to be willing to take that step. And if we're frustrated, we're running out of gas, we're tired, maybe just realizing that temptations aren't the sins, the sins are the things we do with the temptations. Don't get frustrated with the temptation. Be frustrated if you took that temptation and acted on it. Then you want to back up and admit it and confess it and ask for help that you can stand up under those temptations. And God will see you through. My suggestion is, in my own personal experiences, don't focus on what you don't want to do. Because then you're thinking about what you don't want to do and it's possessing your brain and it gets even worse. What I think is even better is to refocus your entire thought. Whatever that temptation is, don't think about fighting it. Think about what the good opposite would be. Where's the health? Where's the goodness? Where's the holiness? Where's God? Shift that thinking into the right direction, and you'll find out that you won't fall prey to the temptation. Taking those positive steps. And then if you're unsure that God has forgiven you, because we've talked a lot about sin, talked about the sin nature, that none of us is perfect this side of heaven, even though God declares us righteous. If you're uncertain this morning, like I was when I was a kid, and I thought I was the only Christian going to hell. I felt that way. And you don't want to ask, because if you are the only Christian going to hell, and you ask somebody, and they say, yes, yes, you certainly are the only Christian going to hell. You don't want to hear that, so you just clam up, and you stay real quiet. If there's anybody here like me at that point in my life, right now, today, then did you hear what Paul said? I feel really crummy about my life. This is struggling, but you know how I get through life? Do you know how I move forward? Do you know how I take a step ahead? Do you know how to get out of bed? Do you know how I write a letter to the Christian community with any integrity at all, telling them to shape up and quit sinning? You know how I do that? Because I know where grace is. I'm forgiven in Christ. This is my identity. Share it with me. This is what Paul does. So this morning, if anybody is struggling, you know where the help is. If anybody is uncertain with their salvation, let's set that to rest. You are who you are in Christ Jesus, even on your worst day. That's the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul talks about. That's what Romans is really all about in real life. And maybe you've not said yes to Christ before, and this is the first opportunity you've had to realize, hey, I can be forgiven by God and made right with God now and forever, then let's just do that right now if you're willing. If the Holy Spirit's moving, let's take it there. Let's take it to God. I'll, I'll lead you in prayer, and you can say what I'm saying in your own heart, make it your own, or you can speak to God in your own words. If you're a Christian struggling with sin, let's give that to God. Let God reign as God does and trust Him. And if you need help, talk to me. I won't critique. I want to help. I don't want to rub it in. I want to rub it out. That's what God does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. Paul has opened up a can of worms, so to speak, only though if there is no way out. In humility, we admit that, God, we do things that we don't think are right, but we do them anyway. And sometimes, Lord God, we don't do things we know we should do. 
and that as well is, is to fall short. God, it's a humbling thing to admit that not a one of us is perfect, that we are all growing and learning and being shaped by your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. And it is a process. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to cooperate. We'll keep our eyes on Jesus. We'll walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We will turn to you in prayer when we're tempted. And we know that you will deliver us from the evil one. We thank you for your grace being greater than our sin. Thankful that we are who we are in Christ Jesus, even in moments of doubt. You are faithful. And we thank you, God, for who we are in Christ. For anybody here this morning that may say, you know, I, I want to be right with God. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to know that good feeling that comes from knowing that I'm right with you, Lord. Just say a simple prayer. God, thank you that Jesus died on the cross out of love for me, that my sins, all the things that I should have done and didn't, and, well, I did do and I shouldn't have, Lord God, I surrender to you. I know that Christ paid that price for me, that I could be free now to live and to love and to be loved. Father, help me now in the power of your Holy Spirit to live the way you want me to live. I need your help to do that. And I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here around me, the family that I am now a part of worldwide. Thank you, Lord, for that great gift that we have, eternal life, through faith in Jesus. All things are made right. You've declared us right. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.
join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father, which is so wonderful, and the sacrificial the sac- allergies, the sacrificial grace of Jesus Christ, which is so tremendous and all-encompassing and so complete, and the wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit, family forever together with Jesus. Be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's people could say, Amen. Now go and sin no more. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.